Who would like to begin with the question? <laughs> it seems that way. <laughs> I really are inspired by your statement that um, in recent years you, you decided to teach meditation in a more infection way and try to have more um, people. I'm, I'm wondering um, the reason for that. I know you have been practiced meditation for 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. And why recent years is all about com- uh, compassion, or you feel you have a sense of responsibility, or you try to, this is a necessary for uh, progress on uh, our practice. I'm actually wondering why it took you so long. That's the one I've been wondering, yes. <laughs> Well, it actually began more because I realized that it was necessary as a part of my own path that in order to go forward that I needed to, I needed to undertake the project of uh, helping other people, sharing what I had learned. How is that so? How is that so? Yeah. Um, Well, one of the effects of the Dharma is that uh, it makes life much easier. And a downside of that is it can cause a certain amount of complacency. So, that was part of the reason. I had come to a place of being rather complacent with uh, the progress that I had made. Uh, not that it was so much that I didn't still have plenty of good reason in my life to uh, try to overcome the afflictions and, and uh, further free myself from suffering, but. It was, it was good enough that it allowed a lot of complacency to develop. And recognizing that, <clears throat> recognizing that um, by putting my focus on the needs of other people would give me the, the sort of jump start I needed, the motivation to, uh, to get back into my own practice in a, in a deep way. Uh, there was that recognition and then at the same time there were people coming that wanted to that were very sincere about the Dharma and they wanted to learn and some of them had been practicing for a long time and I could see that they were really they were not making much progress and I knew that I could help them and so uh, and in the contact that I was with him, in with them, you know, uh, it was that made them part of that close circle that Einstein talked about in that quote last night. That close circle of people that you can see the the lack of a boundary in. So that that helped inspire me to begin because people I could relate to and see uh, dearly. Uh, we're, we're ser- seriously dedicated, dearly wanted to have success, but the methods that they were using and the and, uh, practices that they were following weren't getting them anywhere. So that inspired me to start sharing what I knew. And it also made me aware of something that I didn't realize up to that time. I had managed to be sufficiently isolated that I thought all of these people going to all of these retreats and all of these teachers were making great progress and, and uh, you know, achieving the, the goal that they were after. And I came to realize that that wasn't really the case, that there really was a problem, that the Dharma was doing a better job of attracting people 
than it was of satisfying their needs. And, uh, and so I could just at least see in the immediate situation that I could help, that I had a role to play. But then out of that, you know, my awareness started growing more and more, realizing one of the things I realized, I'd long been aware, long before it seemed like everybody else started really catching on to what was happening to the world in terms of uh, overpopulation and resource depletion and global warming and everything else. Uh, I had been aware of that for decades and I'd almost been aware of it and concerned about it for so long that uh, I'd almost given up on caring. (laughs) It's like (laughs) nobody else seems to care. (laughs) But uh, anyway, it was clear to me that that this path that the world is on, uh, it needs it needs some really drastic medicine, and that this is the kind of drastic medicine that it needs. The other part of it is all the individuals. You know, I really started to recognize how much suffering there is just everywhere in all the different forms. And the, the fact that, um, that there is an answer to it and that, uh, that something can be done about it, it's true that, and, and I don't know the solution to this part, that so many people don't even know that, don't even know that there is an answer. And, uh, you know, their suffering just accumulates and they make more and more for themselves. But certainly there are more and more people who realize that there needs to be, you know, that that they're experiencing the deep satisfaction, dissatisfaction with their lives the way they are. And the, the strong urge to seek out something more and something better, something beyond that. But it seems like the number of those people is increasing. That's a feeling that I have. I don't know if you share that feeling, but my feeling is more so than 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. There's more and more people with that awareness that, that there's, got to be, there's got to be something, there's got to be a better way. There has to be more to life than this. <coughs> And that coupled with the fact that I can see that if, if more people in society were capable of uh, doing the work on themselves and freeing themselves of their own suffering, then the impact they would have on other people is tremendous in, in two ways. One is that they could, they could share the Dharma and the fruits of Dharma with other people, but the other is that even if they didn't do that directly, it would be an influence in our society to de-emphasize the wrong view, you know, de-emphasize the view that that competition and aggression combined with desire is uh, really should be regarded as virtues. And our society does; it regards competition as a virtue, and people encourage their children, their seven-year-old and their twelve-year-old and their fourteen-year-old children. They grow up and learn to be competitive, you know, my team over your time, you know, the sense of separation and, you know, just because you happen to live in a neighborhood and go to this school, then the team of this school has to beat everybody else and has to be the best. And I mean, of course, an adult, that's nonsense, but we, that's how we train our kids. Identify with the group you're in and then everybody else is, is in some sense or another the enemy or lesser or so on. Uh, advertising, television, magazines, radios, uh, internet, everything is uh, feeding greed, encouraging greed, feeding desire, encouraging desire, you know. Oh, and then some of the worst thing is the last few years, uh, last, you know, at least 10 or 12 years, people on national radio and television who are just spewing out uh, the most, the worst hatred, you know, uh, Rush Limbaugh and people like that. And 
it's bad enough that people are spewing out hatred, but the worst thing is that all the people who entertain themselves by listening to hatred, you know, there's something wrong. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, at some point, you know, you could either, I, I could either stay totally withdrawn and, you know, found my own path and just not be concerned with the rest of the world. Uh, or I could try in some way to uh, make a difference. And uh, that's, that's what I chose to do, to see, see if there's some way that I can make it. And I don't know if I can, I'm just trying, right? <laughs> you know? and, there, and there's a problem. There's a lot of challenges in this. There's ten of you here, not a thousand. On the other hand, you know, and on one side it means, well, so whatever I'm doing and teaching, I'm only reaching ten people, but then, of course, whoever you ten reach and so forth. But then I'm able to communicate with you ten and to teach you things that I could never possibly teach a thousand people. I mean, there are some teachers and speakers who can reach large numbers of people at one time. But at least so far, I don't think I'm that kind. <laughs> so, um, so I, you know, in terms of what it will all come to in the end and where it will all go, I don't know. But it's really clear to me that it's the right thing to do, it's the best thing to do, and it's really, it gives my life meaning and purpose. And so this is what I want to do. And I want to do it as best I can according to my abilities. And, and of course, that's all I can do, is do it the best I can according to my abilities. And hopefully, uh, you know, some or all of you will join me in this. I mean, you'll take what you've learned and you'll use it to achieve your own awakening. But you'll also plant the seeds and share it, and, and you know, in whatever way you can, according to your abilities. You know, either you'll you, you might become a teacher. I don't know, or you might just encourage your friends to come to the next retreat that I do. And either way is really good. The main project I have right now, in terms of reaching people, is I want to write a book. Actually, I have in my head probably several books, but the first one is one that just focuses on the very fundamental, the practice itself, you know, that elaborates on the ten stages. And I want to write it in such a way that people that don't have, you know, people that can't come to my retreat or people that don't have direct access to a teacher can take the information uh, and hopefully make really good progress on their own. You know, I want to. In the book, I want to present them with present the same kind of advice and information that I give you in the meditation interviews and, and dealing with the specific problems that come up. So, so that's my one big project right now. Is that uh, I, I want to get that book finished and it's partly done. It's not that far from being done, I guess. I want to get that done and get that out and hopefully that will reach a whole lot of other people. So, and like I say, there's the ideas for some other books in there as well. That there's sort of two parts to you know what I've been doing with you. One is the practical method, what to do. But the other part is putting it in the context of, of the path and the goal of the path. And so that's, that's really kind of an obvious Book two or volume two or something. I think, did I answer your question? Yes. Oh, okay. Good. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm just curious um, when all this started, when you started feeling like you needed to share with people, how long have you been doing it? Uh, when I started feeling like I needed to come out of my cave in the 
and the mountains. And, yeah. uh, it was about 2003, I believe. Is that about right? 2003? So, probably after Yoshimaiko moved into the mountain area. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, that's right, because the, the idea was planted in talking, you know, in the discussion of the, of the bodhisattva ideal uh, at one of Geshe Michael's silent teachings during his retreat. And so that planted the seed. And that was, uh, it came out in 2003, so I guess that was either sometime in early 2003 or maybe in late 2002, I don't remember exactly. When. It was just one comment. It was just one thing, and I, it might even have been something that he was quoting from something else. I don't know, but it, it sort of alerted me and planted the seed, and I started thinking about it. And I realized that, yeah, that's that's how I that's what I, I need to get unstuck. I need to start moving. And then uh, it was shortly after that that people started asking to. Uh, uh, have meditation instruction. So before that, I was living in my seclusion. Nobody knew I was there. Uh, <laughs> you said you were content with your um, with your progress, and you became a little complacent. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So you weren't uh, practicing as diligently. But that's right. Yeah, and well, I sh- and there's another thing I should mention that played an important role in all of this I didn't mention. In addition to the students coming to me in person, I started. I started, even before I did much in person, I started teaching on the internet. You know, I became involved in a couple of different discussion groups, and then people from all over the world started asking me meditation questions and I, you know, they'd read the answers to the questions that I gave somebody else and then somebody else, you know, that would inspire them to ask questions. And so I got to a point where I was spending a lot of time every week just answering meditation questions on the internet. That's an important part of what happened. And then at some point, uh, one of these people started a Yahoo discussion group Basically, so there would be a forum for me to do this teaching, and that still exists today. You know, that's called the Jhana Insight uh, Discussion Group on Yahoo, and that is actually that led to my being here because on that discussion group, uh, I ended up having a lot of correspondence with uh, Michael's brother, Dr. William Chu. From the University of the West, and uh, actually, he worked on me for a long time to persuade me to to start. And he deserves a lot of credit. He was very persistent because I really, I sort of resisted all the way. You know, I came this far. So okay, I'm willing to teach people who are willing to come all the way to where I live, out in the mountains, and people were coming an hour and a half. Of, they drive an hour and a half. Or, and I was willing to go that far. And William kept pushing, you know, me to do more. And so he played he played an important role, he really did. He deserves a lot of the credit for that, undoubtedly. But eventually he began well, he actually encouraged a number of people that from the this his sangha, basically, the group of people that he associates with and practices with, they came out to where I live in Arizona and then in turn persuaded me to come out here. And Deborah has played a really key role in all of that too by helping to make things happen. You know, this is the third retreat we've done. And for the first one, she did virtually all the organizing, contacted everybody, answered everybody's questions, uh, checked out this place and made arrangements for us to use it and everything. And then later Michael and Scott 
and uh, some other people that aren't here that came right now came involved in helping make that happen too. So really, it's been a group effort. It's sort of it grew organically from. You know. So here I am, the hermit, come out of the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. It's my pleasure, sincerely. It's, uh... Are you still living in the mountains? Yes, <laughs> I'm still living in the mountains. So, so we, you just need a little bit more persuasion to get you out in the public. <laughs> to live like in the center of all the people. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't yet been that thoroughly persuaded. Can I get my brother? To, to up there. But William is still trying. <laughs> <laughs> I will find a place here. <laughs> yeah. But this is uh, this is all I do now is teach Dharma. So uh, I'm a full time Dharma teacher. Yes. Yeah, you say mindfulness in mental stages. Mm-hmm. Is this mean there are more than one stage? Of mindfulness? In mental or, stages. Or, or more than one mental stage. Well, Is it? Uh, yes, there are. Okay, mm-hmm. could you describe a little bit? <laughs> well, Actually, uh, I'll just give you some some sort of uh, definitions and some structure that that this lies in. Okay. Um, first of all, mindful awareness or fully conscious awareness is what we're trying to develop, and. We, as you know, as you experience, we have different degrees of mindful awareness. Sometimes we can be very dull, not very aware at all. And sometimes we can be very vividly and clearly aware. And so, in, in terms of mindful awareness itself, and sati is the Pali word for that, it refers to being fully consciously aware and having uh, uh, a, that there's a quality of penetrating into the object that's observed. That's one aspect of it, that we use words like vivid and intense for it. And then the other aspect of it is clarity. And, and what, it means by, what means clarity is that we can look at something, <clears throat> anything we look at, and we can look at it in sort of a superficial and cursory way. And what we do is that we will <clears throat> assume we've actually uh, we've actually seen what's there. And a lot of what's happened is that we haven't really seen, but our mind has filled in a lot terms of our expectations of what we think we're going to see. And so, in that sense, there's not clarity. There is obscuration. Uh, it's obscured, obscured by uh, the intervening uh, concepts and expectations that keep us from really seeing what's there. So, these two go together. If I, uh, if I examine something visually uh, in, in a penetrating kind of uh, awareness, so I'm, I'm really seeing the details of there, then what also will happen is that I'll see, I'll, I'll see it much more clearly. You know, for example, with this, I might have looked at it just briefly and thought the handle was covered with a piece of cloth. And now I look at it and I realize, no, it's a thread that's wrapped all around it. So that's my seeing what's really there. 
This is just, uh, it's the general principle. Anything that you apply your mindfulness to, you can have both these qualities of, of vividness of perception and clarity, the degree to which you you uh, remove preconceptions and you try to see what's actually there. Whether you're being mindful of a sensation, you're mindful of a thought, mindful of something you see, mindful of something you hear. So this is the essence of mindful awareness. And I like the word uh, fully conscious awareness. Um, a lot of the language that we use you know, we, we get used to it and we know what it means, but it's not self-evidently clear. And when somebody says mindfulness, it's not really obvious what that means. But if you say mindful awareness, then that helps to make it clearer. If you say fully conscious awareness, I think for most people that makes it, that, that catches the meaning of it. You're, you're, you're not just aware, you're fully conscious in your awareness of what's there. So sati is fully conscious awareness. Now, of course, there's, uh, we have been talking about this in terms of this mindful awareness focused on objects, any kind of object. And it can be a, a thought, an idea as well as a visual object or a tactile object or auditory. can be any of the senses or any kind of mental object. That's one kind of mindful awareness, mindful awareness that is focused on an object. The other kind, I call it introspective mindful awareness. That is where you are aware of your own mind and what's taking place in your mind. And this is the most valuable uh, mindful awareness. It has a, a name. Uh, if sati is the Pali word that means uh, mindful awareness or fully conscious awareness, then sampajana, uh, or sometimes is made as a compound, sati sampajana. Sampajana is the word that means this introspective awareness. It means that you know exactly what's happening here in your mind. In the same way that if I examine this with mindful awareness, I know exactly what I'm seeing. You know, and the stronger my mindful awareness is, the more I truly know what I'm seeing. So if I have some pajana, I'm observing my mind and I'm seeing very clearly what's there. And specifically, when you examine your mind with mindfulness, what you can see is what is the mind doing in the moment? And what the mind does is it creates intentions, uh, it projects uh, perceptions, and it uh, is motivated by uh, well, there's different motivations, wholesome and unwholesome. It's either motivated by desire and aversion, or it's motivated by uh, uh, generosity and loving kindness and compassion. So, mindful awareness applied to your mind is knowing what your mind is doing in the moment, why it's doing it. And also, in that dimension, and this, this is where uh, this is the important dimension, is is what it's doing and the reason uh, and the basis for what it's doing compatible with what you, what you aspire to and what you wish for and what you hope for. So, uh, and applies to absolutely everything, you know, uh, what am I doing? Well, I'm taking a bite of noodles and what is, the, uh, what is the reason for it? And uh, the reason for it is that I need to feed my body, it's a time to eat, I'm hungry, and uh, the noodles are good. And is this appropriate? And yes, it is. But another time, you know, you might find you're doing something 
and you recognize that the reason you're doing it is out of desire or aversion or some emotion that's flavored by that, and you see that it's not indeed appropriate. So that's that's mindful awareness of the mind. And so uh, you want to learn to practice both. Now the stages, the stages of this mindful awareness, first of all, we learn to make it strong by focusing on, uh, by, by in, in terms of object awareness, by focusing on the various objects. When you're walking, the sensations of walking, you know, and when you're, uh, when you're meditating, the sensations of the breath, or when you're doing anything else, just being aware of the object that you're, being, being clearly aware of the object that you're uh, attending to. But, and as it becomes stronger in that way, then you also, at the same time, learn to apply that same kind of awareness to your mind. Okay? So, now, your walking meditation can be walking with your awareness focused on the sensations of the soles of your feet. But now, you are also aware uh, of what's happening in your mind as well. And that becomes clearer and clearer by stages. But that's the two main parts of it. First, it's focused on the object, and then it is focused on the mind. And really the way it develops is that you start off, you're looking at the object, and then you look at your mind, and then you look back at the object, and you look at your mind. But after a while, you come to a place where you're looking at your mind, and you're looking at the object at the same time. You actually come to a place where it's as though you've stepped out, that conscious, that conscious awareness has stepped out of the functioning of the mind. And so the mind continues to do what it's doing. The mind continues to observe the sensations of the breath or of walking. And, but the real focus of mindfulness, of conscious awareness, is on the mind that's doing it. And so both are happening at the same time. So instead of doing one and then the other, going back and forth from object to mind, object to mind, object to mind, it's both come into clarity. Uh, one more question. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when we are sitting, mm-hmm. uh, mindfulness in body is better than in mental staging, is it? When you're sitting? Yeah. Well, if, uh, if I try mindfulness in mental state, it is feel a little dizzy. So I change to <laughs> mindfulness in my body. Um, You, what you want to do is to move from one to the other, so that you, so that you, you know, it's, it's through practice, right? And so, if you try to force yourself to, you know, be focused on your mind before you're comfortable with doing that, then uh, then you might experience some disorientation, and also you'll find it hard to do. You'll find that you know your your attention is just really hard to, and that's why we use that's why we use the sensations of the body to keep the mind centered and focused. And so, in this way, once the mind is focused on the object, then without losing the object, now you can shift to being aware of the mind. See, and that will that will keep you grounded, so you don't float off into the stratosphere and uh, feel very strange and not know where to go. <laughs> With your mindfulness. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I hope that answered your question. Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. Yes? I still eager to continue on the last night's topic. Uh, you mentioned about emissions. Uh, um, omissions. Uh, you would you'd like me to say more about omniscience of the Buddha? Okay. We started with a question that Maple asked, did the Buddha ever make mistakes? <laughs> and uh, 
and you know what they and, and I answered that in part we can see in the sutras accounts that very clearly indicate that uh, at least by any standards that we would normally hold that he did make mistakes in other words he didn't know the future consequences of everything that was going to happen and so that uh, although at the same time we see so much evidence that he's incredibly skillful and very wise um, there is there has grown up in Buddhism the interpretation in what we call popular Buddhism that the omniscience of the Buddha is kind of like the omniscience of the Christian God who knows everything, everywhere, every thought in everybody's mind, uh, every blade of grass, every, you know, things like that. Um, and this has become sort of in, enshrined as a, as a tenet of Buddhist truth. But um, the true omniscience of the Buddha is that he understands the nature of the mind and he understands the nature of the delusion that is the cause of suffering. He understands the path and the dharma. That he has the... In other words, he understands ultimate reality. And through understanding ultimate reality, well, shouldn't call it ultimate reality, ultimate truth. He understands ultimate truth. And on the basis of that, he can help people enormously in terms of uh, relative truth to a degree that, you know, it, it, it seems like a kind of omniscience. And a Buddha is said, one of the powers of a Buddha is said, the ability, said to be the ability to know uh, the minds of others. And this is a demonstration of it. So, so the fact that a Buddha could uh, can direct a teaching at just the right level to a person so that they can grasp it and understand it and so that they can become awakened. That is a very special and wonderful kind of omniscience. But, um, you know, in terms of the historical Buddha, it, uh, you have either two choices, either he was omniscient, but he pretended he wasn't. He really knew everything, just like God. In which case, we have to figure out, well, now how is it, based on all of the other doctrines of Buddhism and the Dharma, that we could account for uh, the Buddha having this godlike power of omniscience. Or the other possibility is the that the omniscience that is spoken of, the omniscience the Buddha really has, is the, the knowing of the nature of ultimate reality, and knowing the nature of the human mind, and fully understanding the path to awakening, realization, gaining wisdom, and so forth. And so, um, that would be my answer to the question. To me, it is, uh, first of all, uh, it's not logical, and I don't see any reason why you need to say that the Buddha has this kind of absolute omniscience, and that when he did things that didn't turn out the way they should, what the commentators hundreds of years later is make excuses, you know, to be apologists, to uh, to say, well, what's really happening, and you know, make up some kind of story if he knew the past karma from previous lifetimes of these people, and and therefore, even though it appeared like this was something that shouldn't have happened, you know, I see no reason for that. That is something that it may be emotionally comforting for somebody who has the need to replace the idea of an omniscient deity with an omniscient Buddha. But 
personally, I don't feel that need. And I'm really happy to have the omniscience of the Buddha consist of that kind of wisdom, you know, plus plus the ability to uh, uh, see past lives of every kind of being and uh, understand how karma works. I mean, that's that's good enough omniscience for me. How did he respond to to his mistake um, when he found out that a large number of his disciples committed suicide or killed themselves? He he gave a teaching about why this wasn't right. This is the wrong thing to do. Mm. And I I don't believe anybody ever did that again. Yes. Um, would you think uh, more about ultimate uh, uh, truth? Well, I, well, emptiness is the ultimate nature of reality. Uh-huh. So, the ultimate truth. We've been, I've been talking to you for uh, what, eight or nine days now about uh, ultimate truth. <laughs> so, is there a particular, if there's a particular aspect of it you would like me to say more about, that's fine, but it's not something different than what we've already been talking about. Okay. Yeah. Well, the Buddha was assumed to have achieved uh, the full enlightenment yeah. at that night, right? Yeah. Okay. Then why he still need to practice meditation after that, after the full enlightenment, here? Well, he didn't give us a specific answer to that himself. Um, uh, And there's several different. uh, Well, one once again, this is sort of the 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 very elaborate explanation is that what he was actually doing in those meditation is he was visiting other worlds and devar realms and he was teaching the dharma in those realms. So that, you know, he wasn't just, he was already fully awakened so he didn't have to practice anymore. So when he sat down and closed his eyes, he was off to teach, you know, in different Brahman realms. Um, Then, Another explanation is that, you know, uh, he chose to uh, stay in the world to, uh, to teach, and so uh, he nourished himself on, on the bliss of the practice and uh, uh, experienced the jhanas and, uh, you know, that, that that's what he was doing, that it was in the same way that he nourished his physical body, he supported his uh, his mind through a sustained practice to allow him to be able to be in the world and uh, live the way he did and teach effectively for so long. So he took a vacation. He took vacations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a daily vacation from samsara. <laughs> because yeah, because my my coworkers when they come back from vacations, their wounds heal much faster. It's like the old wound that wouldn't heal. After they come back from, their, <laughs> from, from a vacation, their wounds all heal. Like, oh, this is good. And same for me. You know, some of my old scars here are healing. <laughs> and uh, as he became older, he, uh, you know, his body uh, did the same thing that all of our bodies do. And uh, the indications, it sounds like at the very least he has a lot of back problems. And so, you know, quite simply, uh, you know, uh, it might have been part of taking care of himself properly, which was to use meditation to sustain recovery. Yeah, makes perfect sense to me. Uh, Another possibility is just, you know, a wonderful thing to do, so he just wanted to. (laughs) This is a good example, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe also possible he just used that time to to uh, to think, to reflection, how to teach and refine and to teach. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, we have no way of knowing, but I would, I would think that that is highly probable. You know, if you, if you look at his teachings and the Dharma and how, how well, how, how coherent it is and how well presented it is, uh, one would think that, you know, he spent a lot of time thinking about the best way to present it and describe it and explain it. So, I would, that would make perfect sense to me. I would assume that would be the case. Well, even after he's a fully man, he used uh, uh, weeks, weeks to, 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 how do you say, to, uh, to summarize this. this That's exactly this. right, yeah. He didn't start teaching for uh, quite a few weeks. And I think uh, it seems to me very, very likely that what he was doing, that part of what he was doing, and those, not all of it, but part of what he was doing, I mean, at some point, you know, he describes it himself, he puts it in the uh, uh, allegorical terms of being visited by Mara, who invited him to leave this realm since he had already achieved his awakening. And he himself had experienced a question, you know, a, a doubt as to whether there's any point in trying to teach. And uh, supposedly uh, the god Brahma came to him and begged him to teach and so forth. All of which I think is allegory for the fact that he had to spend some time deciding you know, this is going to be a tough thing to explain to people, is it even worth doing? And once he came to the conclusion that it was worth doing, then, you know, it would seem like he would naturally want to think through and organize in a form that could be presented verbally to decide how to present it. And if you look at what are supposed to be his first two uh, teachings, they're very, they're very powerful, they're very... They, they contain so much in them. The first one is a teaching on the Four Noble Truths, and then the second one is a teaching on not-self. You know, and so it's like, you know, here I am trying to write a book, you know, and I'm trying to think how to communicate the things that I've learned to other people, and so on and so forth, and I go through this process of organizing in order to do that, and I see the kind of construction and organization in those sutras that are presenting these very, very basic teachings as reflecting that kind of uh, intellectual, uh, what's, the, what's the best way to present it now? You know, and then, so it would make sense too that throughout the rest of his uh, 45 years or so of teaching that uh, he would continue to do that, to continue to refine and, uh, and uh, uh, perfect the way of presenting that. And we do find in the sutras, you know, usually the explanation given for differences in the way different teachings are presented is that he was teaching to people of different capacities. And I think that is absolutely true. I think part of what he developed was systems how do you present the same doctrine to uh, people with different levels of understanding and background and so forth? That's part of it. But also, I think what we see when we look at the sutras carefully is that, and, and, and the sutras are not organized chronologically. It's difficult to know what became, what came before and after because they're, they're not organized according to time. But there are certain sutras where you compare them and it's the same teaching and the it's clearly it's been refined. He's added some new elements that make it strike home more clearly and more easily and things like that. So this all reflects what I think you would absolutely normally expect to find in a dedicated teacher. So well, we'd be at all surprised if uh, some of the time that he spent meditating was also spent thinking about the best way to teach. Yes. Um, how has the teaching impact your own practice? Has it diminished it because you have a lot less time to practice? Included? No. <clears throat> uh, 
I, I really enjoy my practice and, and teaching gives me lots of opportunity to practice. And uh, the, you know, the other main project that I want to do is to is, is my writing. It's really all of the other maintenance responsibilities of life that uh, uh, I, I would either... I'd probably spend more time on my writing if I had it, <clears throat> but if I didn't have... If I had hugely more time and, or didn't have the writing to do, I'd, I'd probably spend some more time practicing, but I'm pretty happy with the level of practice that... Uh, you know, I... I uh, on a typical Monday... I'll sit for three hours as, uh, with walking meditation in between with people who come to visit. Um, then on Thursday night I sit and I teach and on Friday morning I do three sits in, in the morning. And so the teaching, it just gives me the opportunity to practice. I do this retreat here and I get to come, you know, I do three sits a day. And, you know, can't complain about that. <laughs> I, could, I can't say teaching is getting in the way of my practice. It's just... It's, they go together perfect, yeah? <laughs> and also, I, I should explain to you, too, that for me, there isn't, there isn't a difference, you know, it's like I'm practicing when I'm sitting and I'm not when I'm not sitting. It's basically, I'm practicing all the time, you know, I, in one form or another, sometimes with greater degrees of intensity and sometimes with lesser degrees of intensity and focused in different ways, but essentially uh, there's no no real demarcation and separation for me. And that's what I that's the direction that I'd encourage you to take your practice in as well. That you know like in the course of the retreat I asked you, you know, to try to practice all of the time, morning to night. And I would suggest that you uh, make it your goal develop your skills to the point where it's not just in retreat that you continue to practice when you get up and go to eat and do the other things that you need to do, but that as much as possible in your whole life, you're able to do that. Now, of course, if you go live off in the mountains a real quiet life, it becomes really easy to do that. When you're living in a busy city, driving several hours every day, dealing with large numbers of people on the telephone and everything else, uh, it's going to be it's going to be a challenge. And I you know, I am not I'm not pretending it's not or, or trying to treat that as as if it's trivial, because I know it's not. But nevertheless, hold that intention that you want to make your whole life your practice. And that you have your your sitting practice and your walking practice and your eating practice and you're talking on the telephone practice and you're driving a car practice and so on and so forth. Which is where the stages of mindful awareness become, you know, develop those and then, you know, you're, you're, you're able to do that. Yes? Yeah. <clears throat> Will William translate your book in Chinese? <laughs> I, I think I'll insist on that. <laughs> Could they both issue in the same time? What's that? Could they both be published at the same time? At the same time. Well, you know, uh, there's things that I don't have control over. <laughs> Why the same time? Wouldn't it be as soon as... The sooner the better. <laughs> yeah, the if the English is available, of course, publish it first. Yeah, yeah publish it. Yeah. As soon as I can get it published, I will, and <clears throat> I, I, I won't wait for William. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I think I'll insist on that it's... Uh, I can't insist, but I can. I can say <laughs> yeah, ask it. You can. <laughs> <clears throat> I can use whatever... I, I've been learning from William. How to be persuasive. So I watch William and think, ah, this is how you be persuasive. <laughs> I'll learn that from him too. Yeah. I have a long way to go. You know. He's at stage 10 and I'm at stage 1 half. Okay. <laughs>
you'll take a very good leave with hanging around you. Know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but, uh, and, and I, I, I do need to develop some powers of persuasion if, uh, if I hope to be able to spread this teaching effectively to very many people. Uh, trying to persuade you all to get on board. You know, not just not just learn the meditation so that you can do it yourself, but learn it so that you can teach other people. Right? Yeah, I think visually you're too nice. What's that? <laughs> you're, you're habitually too nice. <laughs> so people, people don't take you as seriously as... I gotta learn to be a little. Competitive. <laughs> 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 He's introduced that word. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. But there are some things that I would like to persuade you to consider. <laughs> is that um, one is that. We formed a non-profit organization, which is legally a church, called Dharma Treasure Incorporated, as a vehicle to help uh, uh, make teachings available. Uh, and so, to become involved with that, you know, uh, we want to have a website. We'd like to have. I, I'd like to have the the teachings that are recorded at uh, retreats be uh, made available for other people to listen to. I think it'd be wonderful if they were accessible from the website. Uh, they could be, it was a potential for transcription. There's a huge potential for translation to make them available in Chinese. So there's, you know, if I could persuade any of you that have those kinds of abilities to help with uh, making that happen, if, uh, to make it available in that way. Um, helping to organize teachings and, and get more people to come. You know, Deborah's done this, and Michael and Scott, excuse me. But uh, all of you, any of you that are interested in, any of you who believe that it's worthwhile doing, you know, you can help with this, and, and you can uh, join forces with William and Michael persuading me to come out and do these things more often. <laughs> so, I, I, I do encourage you all to, uh, to do that. So, um, this, this kind of work takes a lot of support. You know, it really does. Uh, yes? But you go other places too, like Sacramento? Yes, I, you know, and... Well, that, and that's exactly what I'm saying. Is that you know, if you will, uh, if if it's something that you want, uh, you're you're willing to get behind and do. Somebody's got to find a location and you know get people signed up and make all arrangements and stuff. But there's a group there that has um, teacher visiting teachers mm-hmm. on Sunday night, so it would be like a one night gig if that would work for you. Mm-hmm. Well, we can, whatever it is, we can talk. Sacramento's a long way to go for a, a night. <laughs> you know, I mean, it would, it would take me at least a day either side of that night to come and go, even if I just did nothing but go straight and come back. But, I know, just think about it and talk to me about it, and that's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes. The other thing, too, is I really am recognizing the importance of uh, consistency and follow through. In a night, there's not much more I can do than get people interested. So the real purpose of giving a talk one night, or one day, or two days, or something like that, would be to create the foundation to come back and do something with people that was going to be longer. Right? So, because uh, to to spend my time doing, you know, like a very short teachings um, is probably not going to be very effective. I don't know how long I'm around for. You know, I've only got so many days and nights left. I don't know how many. So, uh, just think in those terms. You know, that how can uh, I'm, I'm a limited resource? How can you make the best use of me? Okay. Um, there's a, 
a really large uh, sangha group uh, at Laguna Beach primarily consists of like Caucasian yeah. people. And uh, I think it will be really nice if they can get in touch with you, <coughs> if I can introduce you to them. Uh, I, I'm wondering what are your plans uh, uh, after the retreat? Go home. Go home. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I understand you have plans to do that because of the different circumstances. Yes. But in the near future, um, because I, I think yeah. they... I think they're a really uh, dedicated group, yeah. except they don't. They they are lacking, you know, a dedicated teacher. They have like visiting teachers that will go there, give them bits and pieces of instructions. But the thing is, really, I think they have a lot of potential, yeah. and they can certainly use your help. Well, that's what I'm really interested in: is <clears throat> any sort of a structure or arrangement that you know uh, leads to people being, you know, really understanding the teaching, getting the results out of it, them in turn being able to, to teach and spread it to other people. So rather than piecemeal or just right. shots thrown out here right. and there, some kind of consistency. Because I don't see them getting anywhere. And then, you know, time is flying, they're getting old. And that's what I've seen. Uh, and that, that's one of the reasons that I decided that I was willing to teach as I saw that there's so many people, you know, they've been going to retreats for years and meditating for years and, yeah. you know, they're... They're just like happy hippies and they don't... You know, they, they're not... And, and if that's what they want, that's fine. You know, I, 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 I don't need to... Aging hippie. Happy hippie. I don't need to persuade somebody to do... Something. If they're completely happy doing that, then I don't need to persuade them to do something okay, else. They want more, except but they if they want, want more and they, they just more. don't know how, they then they're right. Yeah. Then they're ready. Yeah. 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 So, time yeah. is flying, and your time is flying. I better get you guys uh, together. <laughs> yeah. So we'll do the right and ready ones. I actually told them about you, except that I think you know they weren't impressed with my writing because I'm not as, as persuasive mm-hmm. as William. Uh, you know, they actually, you know, you know, spread out the chain email telling you, telling them that you'll be here leading a retreat, but nobody signed up. So I think the best way to to get their interest is to uh, have you meet with their organizers. Right. Uh, uh, in fact, Jerry planning to come is the person the Laguna. Yeah, Jerry. Mm-hmm. Jerry, and which? Jerry. Jerry, okay. Is usually in his home to doing the. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The, 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 okay, the one that we did like the three day retreat. Yes. Yeah. I, I gave him your <coughs> articles and the thing, mm-hmm. and he okay. planning to come. But the last minute he has climbed and have a project. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, you know, maybe next time he, he'll yeah. be really interesting. And want to He's come. one of the members, and then it's best to give some of the key members and the organizer. Yes, to I get know. them together and have a have a series. Even yeah. we talk, we talk about this, and uh, so so I think it's very possible. <laughs> Great job. Yeah. Well, that's that's good. I'm glad that you're interested and have ideas. Keep in mind that it requires. It's, it's not just enthusiasm and running out and making something happen. It's planning something that works because, you know, I I don't have that much energy. There's a limit to how much I can do. And I'd like it to be as effective as possible. So think in those terms. Oh yeah, they're a huge group. The other thing, <clears throat> the other thing is that right now, because of the way I like to do interviews, it keeps the size of the of the group small. And so I, I need I need some of you to uh, get to the point where you can do meditation interviews uh, with me and for me, so that uh, we can have more people coming to retreat. Uh, uh, of course, we need to get a bigger place to have a retreat. But the only way that I can see doing a retreat with 20 or 30 or 40 people is if I have uh, some other people who are competent and capable to help meditators. So that, you know, I'm not the only one. Right? And then we have to be, become very good friends. That's right. Because so we have to be lightning fast. <laughs> well, that would be good, but it's not required. <laughs> but, 
It's, but it requires two things. You, you need to, uh, a person to do this, to help me in this way, they need, their own practice needs to become very, very good. But it can't just be that. They have to understand they have to understand the principles of how it works so that because the person that they're talking to isn't necessarily going to be exactly the same. So, you know, some of this comes with time. But you have to really understand the principles that I'm teaching you and you have to understand what you did yourself. There's there's a lot of people out there that are fantastic meditators but they could never teach anyone else to do what they do. Mm. Because they don't know how they did what they do. Yeah, that's why you're very rare. Yes, I recognize that. So. Yes. I'm glad. You're very honest. <laughs> to your great pleasure. <laughs> but it can spread, and other people can be able to do that as well. And it's important that they do. And then one last thing that I would encourage you to do on a related but slightly different vein is uh, consider, uh, you know, uh, making a... Uh, some kind of a formal spiritual commitment, not becoming a, a, a bhikkhu or a monk, but uh, uh, taking these ten precepts that we've been doing and, and formally uh, committing yourself as a dedicated lay practitioner. You know, basically taking taking the same degree of commitment uh, to the Dharma, I think of yourself as a, a lay monk. <laughs> you know? Upasaka. Upasaka, yeah. So, so, of course, you know, time is limited, but sometime, sometime down the line, maybe you can uh, give us uh, uh, more specific guidelines about the, the, the ten precepts. Yeah, well, I, I think that would be a very good thing. We could do a teaching on the ten precepts and uh, discussion of becoming the Pasikas and Pasikas and whoever wants to do it can take the precepts and and make it you know make that formal commitment in your life. So please the invitation is there. I'd love to come back here and do a Pasika ceremony for a whole bunch of people. Some of my friends go to the retreat at the end of month in West University. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, okay. Some of what? Oh, South Bay. Oh, excellent. Oh, excellent. <laughs> yeah. Excellent, that's great. Chinese? Yes, but they're English better than me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, this is great. We got a plan. We're going to have Upasakas who become enlightened and help teach and support spreading the teaching. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And it's, it's more motivation for us to practice hard, which is excellent. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You now you now have a, a, a larger task ahead of you. All of us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, this is the last evening and so, are there any last things that anyone would like to discuss or ask before we? Yes. Could I have one request? Yeah. Uh, later on for the uh, meditation time, would you guide us one more time for the meta? I I would be very happy to do that. I was sort of planning to do that anyway. So. Yeah. Do the guided loving kindness meditation. To where? Tonight. Oh. So, well, should we should we take a break and then come back and do that then? Yeah. All right.